Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we are talking about Manchester United's draw with Tottenham and delving a little deeper into Jim Ratcliffe's involvement at Old Trafford. We'll also be talking Chelsea, Manchester City and remembering the oddest things we've seen at a football match. And joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that, we have two of the finest writers and football journalists in the land, Matt Dickinson and Alison Rudd, and a former footballer who, in his first season playing in defence for Nottingham Forest, had a pretty poor record. Played 20, lost 11, <laughs> drawn 7... One two. Sorry, mate. I just thought I'd dig you out. It's Blue Monday, isn't it? Apparently, this, that this, was law. That one. That's that, was the day. Yeah. that was harsh. Um, well, I, it's a, it's a bit of a lazy one. But maybe I'll go through your career next time and find a really good season. No, I wouldn't encourage that either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a difficult season for you, and it's been a difficult season for Eric Ten Hag and Manchester United. Quite a few draws for Gregor, and it was another. It was a draw at Old Trafford, which has actually been rare for his side. Um, leading twice, Allison. It's, my, it's Monday morning. It's time for my favourite question on the podcast. What did we learn? Did we learn more about Tottenham in this draw or did we learn more about Manchester United? Oh, we learned equal amounts about both, but they were things we already knew. Yeah. So um, Spurs heavily depleted their most exciting flair. Oh, I'd love to sign them. Players were all missing and yet they did what we expected them to do, which was play as if there was no crisis whatsoever because that's the Ange stamp, isn't it? That it doesn't matter. There, there could be some sort of hostage situation, training ground. <laughs> he would send out the cleaning staff who hadn't been able to get in that day to play a match and they'd make sure they played attractive football. So that was what we already knew. But Another chapter in, in, in the Ange playbook. Manchester United, I'm not sure I've ever seen a team play so passively given that there was so much hype beforehand that Jim Radcliffe was going to be there. There he was, sat next to Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, the, the old dynasty, the new dynasty. And you've got a man in a bobble hat who can't even get out in time for the start of the second half. And he misses he misses the early Spurs goal, which is like a proper sort of metaphor for everything that's wrong with the club. Is he spending too much time, I don't know, where is he? Uh, on some sort of laptop, doing some sort of analytics instead of remembering there's an actual game going on. There is a fear permeating the team. And yes, they scored two goals at Old Trafford. But really, really, given the context, given their opponents were depleted, how come it was the visitors who had the ball, who took control. All United seemed to be doing was just waiting for a mistake. 
Gregor, lots of points made by Alison there. I think they strayed slightly more onto the Manchester United side. So I'll come to you about Tottenham. It is impressive what Alison talked about in terms of getting a lot out of these players. Like Richarlison, for example, struggled for a long time, seemingly stepping up, scoring goals from set pieces. After that little dip around the kind of Christmas period, this has been a positive period for Ange Postacoglu, hasn't it? Absolutely. It's been a positive season. I mean, you know, not so long ago when, when uh, you know, after the Chelsea game, I think it was, where they had sort of, they were decimated by injury and suspensions and you thought, this is going to derail their season. I did, you know, we, as you always ask, are they going to finish in the top four? I think I probably start to, vers- you know, in the direction of Aston Villa. And what they've done in that period of time has been pretty remarkable. And it, it comes back to the point that Alison made about style and sort of devotion to that. <laughs> and that and that there was a real contrast between that and what Manchester United are. Um, you know, your mind goes back to to the to the early weeks of Eric Ten Hag's tenure, that uh, hell of a game against Brentford, when they kind of it's like almost immediately they they threw the the philosophy and the style and the 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 idea in the bin. You couldn't imagine Postecoglou doing that. And I know like there's nuance in that. Like part of it was about re- realizing that David de Gea just could not possibly do that, and that some of the defenders couldn't possibly build play from the back in the way they did then you would say maybe he should have been as bold as Pep Guardiola was when he, when, he, when he first came in and said, I need to get rid of the goalkeeper now. And I need to do, I need, there's certain things I need to do immediately to shape the team in my image. And, and then that also would come back, you know, straight into the, the realm of Manchester United more broadly and the recruitment. And it's not, a, it's not an easy process at that club. So there's a lot of kind of conflicting forces in the modern Manchester United. But... Watching this game, the 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 fundamental thing that I was struck by was Eric Den Hag has to has to reveal a style and a kind of a blueprint and what he what he really wants his team to look like very soon, or I think he's gone. Can I just I just that's so interesting, Gregor, because do you think you said Ten Hag should have said, No, this isn't gonna work with what I've got, I need to be bold and make changes. And this is my blueprint. But do you think it's the the club that has stopped? Because it took him an awful long time to get a few things going there and, and to look moderately powerful. Do you think the club stops any personality from doing what something like an Ange? Or do you think Eric Ten Hag just isn't that sort of person to have that lack of pragmatism, that ability to say, I am this and this is all you're going to get? That's a very hard question to answer, <laughs> isn't it? Because, you know... It, it was it was discussed after the game too that Ange Postecoglou was almost making a lot of other new appointments look bad now because because of this this ability to whoever steps in however however poor we think that player has been for Spurs they kind of seem to be able to rise to the challenge and feel invested in what he's asking them to do so he's kind of making other people look bad but they had an equal, I, I think, rep- equal I, reputation though, I, didn't they when they were yeah they, of course the yeah clubs. of course and there are so many you know vaunted names and managers who have been chewed up and spat out by Manchester United that I still fundamentally think that the club has been so negligently run and is is such a a mess that it would be pretty impossible I thought you know I'm not even sure Ange could have come in and asked Juan Bissaka to to, to do the same things that Pedro Porro is doing, he could defend better than him, but he, he couldn't ask him to step into midfield. He, he, he doesn't. Manchester United's recruitment has been so bad over the years that they fundamentally don't have 
the players even that so it's a lot of, you know I'm conflicted but, even saying that because Spurs had we're you know we're playing with a, a group of players that you, you would have said the same about last season so it is about the manager I think but also we're, the, the, the confusion I think we're all sort of gro- grasping around for it is that Ten Hag had a great season last season. I mean, you know, he made set. You know, he he confronted after. You know, there were some spectacular wobbles within it, obviously, and Brentford and 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 others. But the fact is that he it was a good season, and he started to make sense of a lot of things. You know, he confronted the Ronaldo issue, which was another massive indulgence mistake by a, a, a rotten recruitment department. You know, he it it looked like that was the first step towards you know, a serious regime, didn't it? And I think that's part of why this feel, you know, feels a bit whack-a-mole at, at United. It's sort of, you know, you sort out one problem, then another flares up. You And another conflicting thing about it is the fact that Ten Hag and his agent have been heavily, more heavily involved in the recruitment than is probably wise or healthy as well. So, you know, he's he's not off the hook on, on the involvement in the recruitment process, which is... Uh, undoubtedly, you know, one of their biggest failings of the last ten years. Full stop. So, it's. I think that is the problem for the regime, the new regime that's coming in, is that Ten Hag, you know, at one minute seems part of the solution, and the next minute seems part of the part of the problem. Well, you're talking about that new regime, Matt, and leads us perfectly onto the next round of uh, top topics because it's time to ask ask Dicko because you are <laughs> you are the man at the times along with Matt Lawton who covered the Jim Ratcliffe. Uh, takeover or takeover ish, takeover light, should we call it, at Old Trafford? Um, we were chatting on Christmas Eve, wasn't it? And what a pleasure that was to have you uh, <laughs> on side when that news broke. And I thought, come on, Dicko, please, please bail me out here. Luck- luckily, I was only one glass of champagne into my Christmas Eve celebration. So, uh, and pro- professional to the end. Exactly. I, 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 I uh, yeah, jumped to action. Produced wonderful detailed analysis. So, we want to kind of have, as we've got you on, we want to talk about Jim Ratcliffe and what his plans are at Old Trafford. Tell me first about the man, because he's someone who you've known through your career, for his time in cycling and other sports, and you've got to know him, you've interviewed him a number of times. What is he like as a person? Um, remarkably straightforward to deal with in the sense of, so I mean, I'd go back to where I started with him. I was at a, a launch of a new boat uh, as part of the America's Cup Ben Ainsley operation, and he was there, and I knew from various different bits of feedback that he wasn't a huge fan of um, the Times Sunday Times because of a lot that we'd done about tax operations around, you know, obviously they did move the company abroad. He's talked about falling out with Gordon Brown, the government, and, you know, the, the front end had done a lot on that. And um, But he was stood there and I thought, well, I'll just go up and try my luck. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm told that you're not... a big fan but I'm introducing myself and he said well do you want to talk about sport or do you want to talk about tax and obviously you know there are plenty of good people who know a lot more who are doing the tax and I said well let's talk about sport and that's how he operates it's quite a straight you know sort of ask you know straightforward the way the company's run is remarkably you know considering they're a 50 billion enterprise it's sort of remarkably vertical so three three guys essentially running a 50 billion revenue global corporation but there's not a sort of huge head office with reams of PRs and and that level of mid management it's it's it is sort of three guys and there's you know sort of you know an incredibly streamlined operation and I think that hopefully if you're a Man U fan will be to the benefit in the sense of 
they're not a group that faff around. You know, they pr- he prides himself on being this sort of straight-talking northern grammar school boy, and we sort of cut the crap basically. Right. That's 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 really it's a you know incredibly lean operation, and decisions get made fast, and you know they would say obviously not not in haste, but decisions can be made fast because you're not answerable to, you know, 18 levels of corporate structure. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of my dealings with them is that, yeah, it's straightforward, it's lean, and it's sort of to the point. Yeah, no nonsense, but also it strikes me that a lot of the um, initial kind of feelings out of United in this move is excitement for him. He talks about, um, in a piece Paul Hurst has written for the website, with this being one of the most exciting thing he's ever done. And I think there's been a lot of pictures going round and you know him sat next to Ferguson and things. I remember going back to an interview you did with him where he kind of outlined tentatively this being an ambition to own a big football club, potentially Manchester United, one day, a long, long time ago. So there is that almost sense of fandom for him if you oh like. absolutely i mean you know grew up grew up in manchester you know sport sports in his bones i mean i don't think any there's any doubt about that in a way that you know um you know when he's sitting there i'm sure during those 90 minutes he's mostly fan rather than you know i mean you can't you know if you just thrown 1.3 billion into it then <laughs> you'd you'd quite like it to succeed but there is that yeah there is the fandom there is the excitement of it i th- don't think you know the first time the first couple of interviews we did he, he said he didn't want to be silly money didn't so that was there was a wariness about the premier league then about getting involved but he's turned 70 i think there's that degree of you know you can't take it with you. Um, you can't take that fifty billion with you. And also, you know, let's not be too sort of soppy about it as well. There is a business. You know, they are becoming a more consumer-facing um, corporation, you know, producing cars and and just wanting to be known in China and everywhere else. And and a way to get their their conclusion is that you can spend hundreds of millions on advertising, or you can buy sporting entities and and get yourself known and have a whole lot more fun in the process now whether man united is going to be fun is um <laughs> is the big question and i think they think that from what they see there is a lot about the operation that can be improved very very quickly um we've touched on recruitment probably being first on the list um you know i think the amount that the performance side was undermined by ed woodward in particular is just something that needs just a colossal correction you know this is sort of 10 years of undermining and downgrading, you know, things, basic things like, you know, infrastructure, buildings, you know, bricks and mortar, training ground, that sort of stuff. And I think they think there's a lot that that can be done very quickly on the performance side to drag United back to things like world class, which it hasn't been in any department for a long time. Can I I ask you, Matt, he only owns 25%. If I was Jim Radcliffe with, you've just described a man who is hugely successful, is there any sense at all that it's slightly humiliating that that's all he's got? Well, I'd say, I mean, you know, he is a guy that I think everyone can see that want, wants control. Like, you know, basically he's not used to, I mean, I'm sure he has to do all sorts of compromising in you know business when you're running operations on that side or types of sort of careful negotiations, diplomacy even to to get what you want. But and I think I guess he's shown an arch pragmatism about his dealings with the Glazers that he was willing to to do what it this to do what it takes to get a foot in the door. I I mean my 
strong suspicion is that this will become more than 25%. Yeah, this was just the Glazer, the Glazer's dynamic was so complicated. You got these six siblings, two of whom, you know, at least, you know, vaguely care about football, others who don't seem to care less, but have a huge stake in it. And it just that dynamic was so complex that this, if this was the only way to get it over the line, I see why he's just taken a, a very pragmatic stance. But I would you know, say they've got the control of the sport and operation, how those dividing lines actually play out, I think is a big question I would have as a United fan just to see how that does really work. But I would also suspect that Jim Ratcliffe will have more than 25%, you know, in the next year or two. Has, has anyone ever thought of it from the other side, from the Glazer side? If you're the, if you're still on 75% or, well, like, I know there are other minority shoulders, uh, shoulders but you're a majority shareholder, you cede control of the football operation of a football club. Like, has anyone ever thought of that from their their point of view? Like, how could that just under under underlines how little they care about about Manchester United? Well, as anything other than investment, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, this is where you know, I mean, back to back to yeah, I have to name uh, Ed Woodward in this because you know that the lack of accountability there of just who, who's you know, who's, I mean, Ed Woodward spent as much time you know he split his time between London and Manchester. You know, David Gill would be down at the cliff, you know, religiously every week and we'd be there. And that was partly to meet the manager or meet other senior staff, but as, as, as partly just smelling the air. You know, it's your job as chief executive just to know what what's, you know, what's what's the atmosphere here? Is this, you know, productive? Is this, where's this heading? Are people getting on? You know, just to have those sort of conversations. And, and you know, the 10 years after Ferguson left, bit by bit, they say that just got more, you know, it, it did become more and more just, uh, you know, a, 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 a commercial operation with a football team attached. And, and, and yeah, that's been said many times about United, but, I, you know, that's because it's true, I think. I mean, it really is, you know, they did invest a lot of money in players, that's undoubtedly, but it was invested badly. So, you know, that's that's just beyond any doubt. And I think... But, you know, to back to where Ten Hag is, I, I, if I'm, you know, he's clearly, you know, you have to ask hard questions about him. But I don't actually think if I was taken over now, I'd want to be rushing into any Ten Hag decision. I, I'm saving that till the summer. You know, first of all, I'm thinking, right, I'm looking at the entire structure around it. I'm, I'm looking much more importantly for a world-class football director than I am thinking about is Ten Hag you know, the problem or not. Yeah, well, you talked about strong suspicions and I'm sure Manchester United fans listening will be like, give us some more strong suspicions. Come on, then, <laughs> if you know the guy. So I'm going to ask the questions. Strong suspicions. How much money do you think they're going to be spending in terms of obviously within financial controls and things? But are there, is there going to come a moment in the summer where we're suddenly going to see Manchester United spending big money? Well, I think, I mean, my, you know, I, my understanding is they're very tight on FFP already. I don't, I don't mean they've got the flexibility to. So, you know, again, be, you know, because of the colossal mistakes of, of you know, most of the last decade. Uh, so It'll be I, about unpicking that first, do you think? Oh, I think so. You know, and I think, you know, say getting, most important thing is getting that department sorted out, getting someone in, you know, because another massive test of, of Ratcliffe and obviously um, Dave Brailsford is going to be, you know, it's delegation. It's, it, we've seen it before. It's massively exciting to be a fan who, you know, you get control of a club, but then do you have the self-discipline and the good sense to say, look, I have strong feelings about whether Casemiro should stay on or, or you know, him in the team, but 
ultimately I have to trust the experts. So that, again, it's going to be fascinating. And I think the best way that they can prove that there is a new regime in town is to bring in a world-class sporting director. You know, someone like Dan Ashworth would would have been high on a list whether you can prize him out of New- Newcastle who, you know, very capable of giving him a big fat pay rise. But, you know, someone like him, you know, obviously we know the job that Michael Edwards did at Liverpool in in, in league with, with, with Klopp, you know, um, and obviously... Um, at, at Man City, you know the the, the Catalan regime that, that came in and, and turned that around. So you know, United. I think that's that's the first place I start um, because this is about better recruitment, not just throwing money at the problem. Do you think, in terms of Dave Brailsford, and you mentioned him there in context of making these decisions? Obviously, his strong background came from the world of cycling. Is he going to be involved in the football operations running or is he going to be liaising with a director of football? Um, I think it's, you know, knowing him from, you know, sort of 20 years of dealing in cycling, you know, he, he's a guy who will be working <laughs> obsessively 24-7. So it's a sort of, it's a, it's a fine balance between... You know, he will be throwing everything at it, but also being smart enough to delegate. I mean, you know, with you know, bringing in the best in, and I think, you know, what one thing I would, you know, again, they will have to prove it, but I think they will be looking at top operators. I mean, I think they'd be mad, mad not to be, and obviously that is the test now of the type of people they bring in to transform what's been a, you know sort of moribund and and failing operation in many ways. And in terms of the club that they are taking charge of, particularly the football side, as Gregor says, Manchester United is a team that you've covered a lot in your career as a club, lots of dealings with Sir Alex Ferguson, you've written books about the club, including about that treble winning team. When you look at them now, and obviously knowing Ratcliffe and the operation, where do you think they're actually at? You know, we, we talk so much about them and we talk so much in respect to Ferguson we compare them to those years and we say they're just nowhere near it do they is there need to be a reset and kind of saying right we need a new football director we need to improve old Trafford we need to fix the holes in the roof we need to um set up proper structures and we also need to accept we're not going to win the title for five years or more well I mean I think yeah the most important thing is to get the right people in the in big positions and and say there is a question mark over Ten Hag about whether he is that man as there is over John Murter and 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 various others the I mean I think am I right thinking there's only been three managers at Man United who've ever won the league I think um I think it is some remarkable stat like that 22 out of 25 have effectively sort of you know it's a club that's both had obviously some of the greatest glories that we've seen in of any English club and at the same time has had these long periods in the, in the wilderness. I think, you know, the nature of modern football is that the wilderness means fifth place or sixth place, doesn't it? It's not, you know, plummeting down the divisions. It's not been relegated like, like they were in the 70s. But I think at the moment it just feels like there's just been just, I mean, the mediocrity at so many levels, hasn't there? It's not, it's certainly not world, you know, this is a club that at its best you associate with innovation with excitement with adventure with glamour those are not (laughs) adjectives that have been thrown around very much at the moment you're talking about those kind of glory days and it's a fascinating point because i think sometimes that's part of the problem with manchester united they're so wedded to that dynasty period but that doesn't happen in football much anymore obviously jürgen klopp and pep guardiola perhaps might be the last two managerial dynasties at big clubs 
will Jim Ratcliffe be bringing that kind of more clinical look of maybe we'll get in a you know Antonio Conte type figure we might win a couple of trophies and then it'll tail off and then we'll need a new one the more modern way of de- running football clubs will he be that clinical or do you think maybe because he's a fan he sat next to Fergie in the stands might be a bit more romantic in his views and visions um no I think more cl- I think uh, I would lean towards the clinic th- you know we you see the most successful t- clubs are built we talked about this with with Postacoglu coming in they're built in a style aren't they there is you know and it's and it's joined up I mean it's very hard you know Liverpool they've had this dip but they've come back you know reborn in in still in the shape of a of a clock team um you know City you know when when Guardiola leaves there's no chance of being you know Pep Light is there I mean he's such a unique force there so I think the key question is is well first of all you some senior people in who are thinking what is what do we want to be what is it you know because I think the other thing at United is because the rot has gone so deep and so wide in the last 10 years you know I mean I know there's discussions about you know a cultural reboot I mean even among the staff and you can say does this really affect players on the team but I know even at sort of dozens and dozens of staff it's been a quite a miserable place to to work for a while you had the Mason Greenwood um whole episode you know stuff that's just you could say that's sort of you know was sort of brought on onto them by by one person Greenwood himself but it was so cack-handedly handled and it just feels like they've just lurched from just one yeah abject episode to another and yeah, this is a chance. This is a chance for a reboot, but it's also one complicated by the fact that there is this unique co-ownership, co-management structure, and ultimately, you know, we're going to have to see how that plays out because it would be unrealistic to think that it's not going to have uh, tensions. A final suspicion for you, then, uh, Eric Ten Hag himself. You kind of t- touched on him as a subject and his future. What do you think? Jim Ratcliffe will be wanting to see from Ten Hag between now and the end of the season in relation to start sitting down in the summer and going, right, Eric, you've done enough to convince me you're the man. Let's talk about recruitment, etc. What does Ratcliffe need to see from Ten Hag? Does he need well, to see, you know, Champions League? Does he need to see a style like Gregor says? I think it's, uh, yeah, I'd say more towards the, the style, but then that raises a fascinating question itself, doesn't it, of whether does he think well actually my best way of of trying to scrape back up into top four territory is to be you know a sort of non-man united counter-attack you know just become a you know, counter-attack you know i mean what do they have yesterday is it yeah 36 percent possession um you know obviously that's partly due to tottenham and, and 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 how well they did but does he try and become a manchester united manager with all the the, the, the sort of baggage that brings of of how you sort of try and run games, or does he just try and be sort of archly pragmatic? And all of this, having a manager in doubt is obviously gonna, you know, complicated for the players. I mean, that's part of what's going on. And, and, and I don't think anyone should be totally let off the hook here, but it can't be easy when you're at a club where you know that the sporting director is basically, you know, lame duck where, you know, all those conversations that will be going on, where you know there's a new brute, you know, you've got conversations going on all the time with new ownership, a whole new management structure coming in. Now he's, you know, one minute he's answerable to um, Ed Woodward, then it's Richard Arnold, then, you know, Dave Brailsford and Jim Ratcliffe are coming in. I, 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 you know, to be fair to Ten Hag, that's, that's not a lot of fun either, um, to sort of have that 
kind of turbulence constantly swirling around in the background. Will, will anything happen in January, in the January window, to sort of send a signal to fans that this is what we want from the next well, Half this, I mean, offici- officially the, 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 the approval won't go through till early February at the earliest because um, they're still waiting on the Premier League. Now, you know, Dave Brailsford and oh, Jim Ratcliffe was there yesterday and, you know, Ineos are in the building, but formally it doesn't go through till early January. Say, as, as my understanding is that in terms of spending, they are on the limit and that they're going to have to be smart with some, you know, obviously they were trying to sell... Maguire um, didn't happen, you know, McTominay, who then becomes one of their better players of the season, was, was you know, on the, the out list at one point. So it's difficult for them to suddenly just sort of throw money at the problem. But that, so that conversation is, it's a tricky one to imagine. So does Ten Hag say to Jim Radcliffe, well, what do you want me to do then? Or does Radcliffe say to Ten Hag, "I want you to do this"? Who 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 decides what the the way forward is with no spending? Is it just get to the top four, come what may? Doesn't matter how lacking in entertainment is. Or does Jim Radcliffe say, "I'd like to see something different"? I think with Dave Brailsford having those conversations more. You don't yeah. think so? I think he's someone via, who, who will look at like the overarching vision of what best practice success in modern football looks like and that's the kind of conversation I would hope that he would be having with Ten Hag and you'd hope there'll be some synergy there and like whatever's gone on before say, look, maybe you can maybe say look back to what I did at Ajax and that's the kind of that's the vision I have for 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 a modern football club and that's just surely Manchester United fans must desperately hope that that's what the that's what this investment is going to bring ultimately is more of a sort of more of a vision there's been no vision apart from making money would you agree with that, Matt? Absolutely. No, no, I couldn't. Yeah, well put. I mean, it's it's, um, and, but but also that's that vision. You know, it's going to be interesting because you know if you say if you are bringing in a, you know, a sporting director of of clout, then they'll have those as well their own views about what type of club it should be and what type of coach can fulfil that. But no, I think I, th- I think that the. The first questions are about really defining a new strategy of what the club is trying to be, and you know, and I don't, I think Ten Hag could yet could yet turn it round. I think he is a serious coach, as you say. What he did at Ajax was 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 impressive. I'm not writing him off yet, but I'd I'd think he is. He does seem to, you know, we can see it on the pitch. He he seems to be flailing around himself a bit as to what exactly the the overarching strategy is. Absolutely fascinating insight, Matt. And for more detailed insight from Matt and the rest of the Times team, make sure you're subscribed. Uh, That detailed insight will likely include the latest on Everton and Nottingham Forest and a potential spending breach, which I'm sure we'll be discussing on Thursday. For now, stick with us. Up next, we're talking about Saturday's thriller at St James's Park. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark, and today I'm joined by Matt Dickinson, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson to St. James's Park then and a Manchester City comeback, which is fairly ominous for the rest of the league. But more importantly, for neutrals like me, oh, there were some lovely goals, weren't they? Oh, absolutely lovely, lovely football goals. But maybe the most aesthetically pleasing five goals ever scored in a match. Alison Rudd, would you agree? Yeah, no, no, there wasn't, wasn't a single dud, was there? I mean, right they were there. lovely, really what, lovely. What, what, are our fa- what are our favourites? Come on, who's... I'm gonna I'm gonna pick De Bruyne's. There aren't just because it the most Kevin De Bruyne thing ever, isn't it? To come back into the Premier League and side foot a ball into the bottom corner through a defender's legs <laughs> from outside the box. Surely he's about the only player in the world who could do that. I would argue that the most Kevin De Bruyne thing was his assist. Uh, yes, mm. like a kind of an arcing ball a that no one else could, could pick out under the most you know extreme pressure at the moment that. Is that your favourite of the five then, Oscar Bob's winner? I think so, because I also love the finish, the way he shuffled his feet around the goalkeeper. I'll have to go Bernardo then, someone's going to have to. I mean, it's it's really good. It made me think, looking back at that goal and remembering the um, Carnu one for Arsenal, which I think was against Middlesbrough away. And when he scored that, I remember it being like, oh my God, how has a footballer done that? But actually, we just take it for granted now that they can do this little flick between Zola, the legs. Zola's one was the classic yes. one as well. That was the one I sort of instantly came to my head watching it. But um, it's just the way it's, it's. It was such a perfect connection, and it was right in the corner, and it was. It was just, and and he's just such a magical little player, isn't it? That you just know that you know. Sometimes players, you sort of think, oh, he's sort of almost got a bit lucky with that one whereas with him you just think yeah he's he's measured that to the millimeter the newcastle ones were beautiful as well helped i think by the camera angle being behind <laughs> both of them so for that curling one into the far corner that they both managed to pull off um, we we spent a lot of time in our living room trying to say Oscar Bob the way that Rowan Atkinson would say Oscar Bob because he said the word Bob in um, what was the series called? Blackadder. Blackadder. Yeah, there was a Bob in Blackadder. But we decided it's impossible to impersonate. Give it a go. It's impossible because he makes it sound very English. And if you try and no, but wasn't it the it was a female wasn't it a female character that he was caught there wasn't there wasn't that the joke that they were calling it was a female character that they was dressed up as a bloke so that's why they were making big play of Bob. (laughs) (laughs) It's impossible to say it like him, but we were trying. But I love I think the name Oscar Bob is Bob. He's a lovely, lovely name. He's a great name. Wonderful, lovely. He's a great player. Lovely goals, lovely players and lovely, lovely names. But more importantly, Gregor, I'm coming to you. It's City, isn't it? Here we go. Start start the car, start the train, win the league by 20 points. 
here we go, it's happening, yeah, well, isn't I it? Yeah, I mean, I won't go that far, but it's, yeah, De Bruyne, I mean. <laughs> He's quite good, isn't he, Kevin yeah, De Bruyne, I think? ridiculous. For more top insight, listen to the game podcast. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and lovely, okay, lo- love, lovely, lovely hair. Lovely yeah, hair. Yeah. Quite Jack Grealish-esque, I've got to say. When Maybe they sat being... next to each other, it was rather comical. Maybe it? been copying him. But anyway, back to the more serious footballing point. Because, the... Gregor, this is what you've been saying all season when I've been getting excited by Aston Villa and Arsenal and Liverpool are brilliant. And you've been going... Just you watch City'll come. There you go. That was my impression <laughs> of you. Yeah, I mean, even I couldn't have imagined an immediate impact like this from the Bruyne though. It's 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 the way he always like. There's just no fear. It's always he kind of just strolls around in the middle of the pitch, picking up little pockets of space that he can suddenly get on the half turn or just move forward into if no one closes him, and just like without looking at the ball too. He's like he's always scanning around and he plays. Plays like an incisive through ball. Just he's just different to anyone. Yeah. But how does he? Else. I wanted to ask you this, Gregor, because you will have been on the pitch with players that were cut above. Yeah, not Kevin De Bruyne, unfortunately. No, but a cut did above. play against Iniesta and a few of the other greats, though. Well, yeah. But what? How? Why? Why? What is going on psychologically that no one closes him down? Why does he always look like he has the space? Why? I think that why? does him a disservice, how? though. I think because he. There were times where he'd be picking the ball up almost like in a number six position where he'd just like exchange passes with, I don't know, Rodri in midfield mm. and just like, that's just manipulating the, the opposition just to move around. And other times where he's he's almost uh, out, out, out wide and he, then he drops inside from, from out to in into a number 10 position. I think he, you can always say that the defence should, you know, Somebody marked Kevin De Bruyne, please, because he's Kevin De Bruyne. But when he's when he's he's so like unpredictable, he's not really got. A, that's actually a, an important question now. Where is he going to play? Well, Phil Foden Mar- is. Martin Foden Hardy's is written playing. on the Times website a piece discussing what his best position is, and he almost kind of embodies that modern tactical phenomenon of there's no such thing as formations, there's no such thing as positions, is there? It's just Kevin De Bruyne because he can play anywhere. And I'd wonder whether with Erling Haaland out as well, he becomes more important to the team as a whole because it felt like it all just revolved around him rather than a figurehead forward for a change. And it was fascinating to think back to that City team that won the title before Haaland, without, basically without a striker. And you wonder whether they can cope with that because Pep will just go, hey guys, remember that, remember that. Let's just go back to that for a couple of weeks. We'll be fine. Yeah, I think he probably want to put Haaland back in the team, though, Tom. That's the problem yeah. when he's fit. So I think it'll depend on the opposition. You, you often see him tailor who he plays as the two kind of... You know, alongside Rodri, so it was Kovacic in this game. It could be De Bruyne against against certain op- uh, opponents and against teams who, like Newcastle, who he was giving a lot of respect to. Mm. You want to be a little bit more secure in that, uh, and then he's you know, he's got the luxury of rotating them as well. But I, I, he's just on thirty three, right? Mm. He kind of he, he, we do have to. I think he will still be bedded back in. These are going to be impact moments for thirty three in June. But yeah, is he okay? Sorry, yeah, yeah. coming up thirty. So I, I still I don't think he's you know it's been a long time big 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 injury I think he will still be bedded back in so I don't think this is a question for right now but when you're looking at what City's strongest team is going to be when everyone's fit it's it's, it's a tough question to answer but what do the opposition do then because Newcastle were winning that game and presumably you as the management you know he's going to come off the bench De Bruyne so don't you have a plan? I mean, isn't it worth just saying to somebody? Kick him. Well, if you Make look at sure his, you don't give him the if space. If you look at his goal, if you look at his, deliver those if passes. you look at his goal, he, the, the, everyone was really behind the ball, 
and he just saw he just saw an avenue that he ran into. And even then, when he took the shot, there was a defender immediately in front of him. He was confronted, and he put it through his legs. I don't, I don't really blame them for the goal, but I think that 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 sort of element of res- deference almost. It looks like he's being given deference when he's deeper. Do I detect a little fear in your voice as a little bit? Maybe just a little bit. She said, getting very high pitch. Even then, the pass, like I was looking, at, you know, as someone who played a, f- a fullback, I was looking at Trippy, thinking, you know, Bob kind of has gone on his blind side and behind, but the ball is so low and not, it's not like floated in behind. He didn't have any time to really recover. Bob timed the run perfectly. His control was perfect. He shot. Christ, the margins are so fine there. You know, and you have two people. Close. I mean, he's, you know, because of that whole eyes in the back of the head and, and that awareness thing, you know, you try and close him down and he'll be spinning, you know. It remind me of the time I tried to mark uh, Kenny Dalglish in a press match and um, basically I sort of, you know, every time I got within, you know, six inches, the ball and man had disappeared and I was sort of like, is this, you know, there's some sort of magic <laughs> trick going on. But it's, it's, that's the trouble, isn't it? You can swarm around him, and of course, he's just going to be pinging, pinging balls off blind. Those blind passes that set set other runners off. And his two his two decisive moments came from central areas. But when he first came on, he was overlapping on the wing, playing crosses in. Like this is the thing you can't just say unless you're going to see man mark him. That's quite rare nowadays. Manchester United, but he's rare, it. isn't he? So maybe how, rare players require rare measures. How rare is he? Do we think in the Premier League all time? thinking because Martin Hardy's piece as well as discussing where he can play ranks him all-time third in Premier League seasons for assists 103 now since 2012 uh, Cesc Fabricas ne- next on the list with 111 Ryan Giggs far out in front with 162 I'm not going to ask you oh is he better than Gerard Lampard I just it, is he in that conversation oh, far beyond you know is he in a different category do we put him in no, a different far discussion no. I don't think he's far beyond you've got to remember how you felt about Cesc Fabregas for example yeah. and what, how we would talk about players like that and David Silva not so long ago it was like ooh gush 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 he's, he is a gush 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 player but I don't but he's, he's, more, he's, he's more impactful in decisive moments he's, it's like almost more like you would compare more to Toure he would grab a game and win it for them whereas like you know Cesc Fabregas was really easy in the eye and he did that too he did, do, he did those things but mm. There is something he's more like, you know, Steven Gerrard does for Liverpool too. It's the way, it's his drive. It's he comes the, on for, what was it, 14 minutes or something. I think And he just he won them the game. It's the weight of power. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of creative midfield players, I think you'll struggle to top him in the Premier League time. And I think it, to me, it's always just that weight of pass. He just seems to, you know, just have a calibration of that that I, I think is surpasses anything I've seen. It's like those PlayStation games, isn't it, where you kind of power up and you have yeah. to hit the perfect line and then you hit the perfect shot. He seems to have that yeah, in his you head. See that, you see the dots going yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. And you're like, yes, I've lined that up perfectly. He does that every single time. Yeah. yeah. With um, the force, as Matt's saying, yeah. the, the weight. So, you know, some people could clip that passing, but they couldn't do it with the same, you know, power. There was a lot of power on that cross that kind of... You can't even call it a cross, that through ball. It was mm. amazing. Matt, easy time for you to come on the show and ask, answer this question because we've been debating the title race all season and yeah. uh, perhaps after a City uh, comeback win and as Gregor says, with De Bruyne back and Haaland back in a couple of weeks, as I say, Greg has been long campaigning for the don't get too carried away, we're not in a four-team four title race. Um, whilst me, Alison and everyone else have been getting excited about the prospects of Liverpool, Aston Villa, Arsenal, etc. Is it is it going to be another City season, do you think? Um, Go on, say no. I think the, Why not? No, the, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, pre- it's pretty hard not to say yes at this point, isn't it? it I mean, you know, I, not by not by canter, 
probably, but I think, um, yeah, you just look at the attack attacking options that are coming together now and just think they're, they are going to find a way, aren't they? Um, yeah, sorry. I'd love to say that uh, Aston Villa is still going to pull off a, a miracle, but I fear not. Still in the hunt. But um, I want to talk about another team that we have debated a lot on the podcast this season, which you won't have mentioned, is Newcastle. Do you think their season now, currently as it stands, 10th in the table, another disappointing defeat, um, in a tough period for Eddie Howe other than that win in the FA Cup against Sunderland, do you think this is a reflection of how they overachieved last season or actually are they on a bit of a dip and talking about previously another United with with ownership and big ambitions and managerial changes potentially on the horizon, do you think this is the Eddie Howe tenure petering out towards an end? Well, uh, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I did a piece um, just sort of going to the new year about obviously, the, you know, how much the FA will be watching this because, you know, if you're, you know, the, the strong expectation, I mean, Southgate's contract finishes this year and, and um, you know, again, strong suspicion that he will decide that that's, that's enough after this one and who ticks more boxes than Eddie Howe as the, the likely successor and... and um, I think well, yeah, wherever Newcastle finish, you know, he should be, you know, at the forefront of that conversation. I I think that he is hitting some understandable obstacles. You know, that the the a small squad in terms of talent depth compared to most of the Champions League rivals. You're trying to juggle that. You know, that was you know that that the Champions League. You know, it was a there were some absolute humdingers in that, wasn't there? That takes a heck of a lot out of you. You can see it in certain players that have just dipped off. Trippier possibly the most sort of, you know, obvious, but plenty of others who were just not struggling to hit the levels they were last year. And that's, to be honest, pretty understandable. Um, I, it just feels like a team squad that is just, you know, f- a bit frayed and frazzled, doesn't it? Could you um, see Eddie Howe as a successor to Gareth Southgate, do you think? Well, I, th- I think he was probably the most obvious mm. successor now whether that's obviously assuming he wants to go into international management he's still pretty young as a as a club coach but uh, you know certainly if you're the FA you're monitoring Newcastle very closely because I think you know with the, the expectations ambitions of the ownership they're not likely to um, I suspect that they're capable of being quite ruthless if they need to be mm, indeed we're talking about we've talked a lot about club ownership and ownership models and bad ownership and good ownership and things like that. So I wanted to divert our attention away from the Premier League just for a moment. And Gregor, I wanted to talk about Reading um, and the extraordinary scenes there this weekend with a fan protest leading to the abandonment of their match against Port Vale. For the kind of more you know casual football league follower who will have saw this and gone, where the hell's that come from? Tell us where it's come from. What What is the background to this story with Reading? Um... Their owner, Di Young, uh, has run the club in a remarkable fashion, basically. He, I think at one point in 2021, for every £100 in revenue, they were spending 244 on wages. Mm. Been They've reported £191 million in losses up, yeah. and docked 16 points in the past two 16 years. 16 points, yeah. The joke was, I wrote a piece in October and the joke was that uh, that's more than any team in the last three seasons had taken off Reading, 16 points. So their owner had taken more points off the club than any other side yeah and, and the, the, the thing about this is there are genuine fears that you know there are there are incompetent owners and then there are owners who are, are kind of have some 
malign intent perhaps and that's the fear because he has already owned two clubs one in Belgium and one in the Chinese Super League who no longer exist and uh, Was he in the Marvel franchise going around destroying football clubs? I mean, Why on earth would that be your ambition? I don't think we could talk about that on, on air <laughs> Okay, But he that is the fear and, and the thing is now you know there, there have been in talks he's been in talks with uh, various parties about selling the club and and the kind of noises that he's not returning to the table to continue those discussions and there are the players the things things have come up recently like a lot of they've got some young ta- young talented players from their academy Reading still have a very good category, category one academy which might not be category one for much longer in Jan- this month they're going to have to sell which, already a team full of kids but they're going to have to sell the kids that are playing basically and uh, they haven't paid a caterer so they're eating microwave meals they aren't paying you know heating bills so the staff are sitting at, the, their, off- uh, at their desks and offices wearing jackets um, it's getting pretty scary for for the fans so this is the kind of desperate cry for help there have been other others that you know when I wrote that piece in October that was just before a big march through the city in kind of protest. They've thrown tennis balls onto the pitch, which has become quite a familiar uh, sight in in the AFL, unfortunately, in recent years. They've disrupted games in the past, but this is the most sort of blatant cry for help. And the AFL have actually been... They they asked for for the owner to to deposit, uh, I think it was 125% of the monthly wage bill in an account, which he failed to do so. Because he's also been late in paying wages, it's an absolute mess. They've they've come the closest to saying that this is this guy is a, a threat to the club, as they have said about any owner of a football club in in the in the football league. I think, hmm. um, but he's so elusive. He's not. He's never ever given an interview. He's never. He's not attended a game for a long, long time. Um, there are, you know, rumours about him having some money issues back in China about getting money out of China as well. So. Um, it's very scary for Reading fans. So this was, as I say, this was really a, a big cry for help. Yeah, do we rem- condone it? Do you think around this table, the pitch invasion and the match having to be called off? Quite importantly, the Port Vale fans who they were playing didn't. They supported. They very them, much yeah. supported them, uh, which was a good thing to see. Port Vale have been in not a situation like this, but not too long ago. They, they, you know, most clubs. If you go back, if you go back, you know, a decade or so, have been, have had their ex- own experiences of, you know, fearing for what what the club might become. But Reading are very much at the forefront of that sort of fear. Because yeah. it boils down to who, what is a football club? Yeah. And the I football club is its fans. And if answer, the fans have had enough, yeah. they're allowed to stay on the pitch, well, I think. As a fan of a club in League One, I think Gregor alluded to it there, you always have this slight sense of fear and foreboding that this could happen to you at any point mm-hmm. with any bad change in ownership. You know, Lincoln, my team, are very well run at the moment. We've been poorly run in the past. So if I had been there... I think I would have been standing in solidarity with the Reading fans because you always fear. There have been so many stories. Reading aren't the only club that Gregor and I and others have talked about on this podcast and on the Times website that bad ownership has ultimately cost the club its existence a lot of the time. So I think for me personally, I'm sure a lot of fans, as the Port Vale fans did, would stand kind of in solidarity just because you're always fearful that this could be us at any point in my lifetime. Would you literally stand in solidarity Probably, and yeah. stand on the pitch? Probably. I don't know whether I'd stand on the pitch, but I'm sure a lot of the fans, you often see it at these kind of games, you know, that kind of solidarity, that understanding that we know what we know what you're feeling yeah. or, we can, or we can imagine what you're feeling. So there might have been a standing, an applause or something like that. I don't think there's, particularly in the Football League, 
you can have you know the standard chance you know we can see you sneaking out etc etc but when it comes to these moments I think the solidarity is pretty strong between clubs and between fans and we should also point out that when he, his takeover was completed it was just before they were, they were in the playoffs in the championship reached the playoff final lost to Huddersfield I think on penalties you know, the margins were very fine there and since then they've plummeted and had one one positive season I think in his in his entire tenure and and now they're in League One and looking like they're going to be in League Two next season so it's he's driven the club in, into the ground and to try and we're talking about financial fair play I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot more later in the week but they're one of the clubs that sold the sold the stadium to a company owned by him so it's that there's also the complication of you know when someone buys the club they need to buy everything and associated with it the training ground the academy everything like that. So it's very complex now, uh, and he's been doing anything he can to try and try and kind of make up for the some disastrous decisions and the excess of, of recent years. I guess when, you know, when we're talking about the regulator argument that keeps going around. I mean, I don't know in this in this circumstance, how would a regulator have made any difference? Could in terms of thwarting him in the first place or measures now? There should be more investigation well, of what people have done prior to takeover. Yeah, the well, evidence you, is there that I believe, his ownership has gone I believe you, you looked into buying Hull when they were in the Premier League and the Premier League weren't happy enough to for them to proceed. So there are question mark there are questions for the EFL to answer about this. But it's a look, it's always a difficult question. You don't know when someone arrives whether they're yeah. whether they're gonna be any good or not. It's it's about checks and balances afterwards as well. And at any point when a club is spending this comes back to the to the conversation we had with, with Martin Samuel uh, on Thursday. If you're allowed unfettered, unfettered spending, if you're paying £244 out for every £100 you earn, just on wages alone, what happens when they walk away? Or mm. what happens when the money runs out? It's, it's, this is what happens. Yeah, it's a remarkable situation. If you're a fan of Reading or any other club in the Football League, maybe you disagree with me on my point that you stand together or you want to have your say, you can get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Um, I'm sure it'll be a situation that we discuss in more detail as the season progresses. Uh, returning to the Premier League, Alison Rudd, you were at Stamford Bridge and you've written a piece on the Times website now that says Carabao Cup final looks a long way off for Chelsea and Fulham. It's a bit negative for you, isn't it? <laughs> well, it wasn't a very enjoyable afternoon. I mean, it was... This was a this was a derby game between two clubs that are very close together geographically, and you know one's traditionally small and one's traditionally big, and they're supposed to be needle, but you would never have known it. There was very little oomph from from either side, and you wouldn't have known it really from the fans either. I mean, the most eye catching player on the pitch was William, who, let's face it, made his name as far as we're concerned with. Chelsea, he was fantastic for Chelsea. His career looked to be over, um, didn't have a great time at Arsenal, but has come back to Fulham and almost has the same sort of influence for Fulham that he did have for Chelsea. And the Chelsea fans, the only song they sang, they sang it twice, was the famous William He Hates Tottenham song. What's, I mean, that to Couldn't me even just... Muster, have they got a chant for Cole Palmer yet? I mean, no, he's pretty, there's he's, not a chant for anybody, but William, who doesn't play for them. I mean, it's, it is it is slightly ridiculous that there isn't that connection between the stands and the pitch because there's not a lot there's not a lot to excite them. Chelsea are quite as a group they they play with an immaturity. They never look fully in control of a game. They played this game back to front, so they they could have got the fans on side by 
by sort of going at Fulham, but they were very cautious. There was a lot of passing backwards, a lot of just not being overly confident. And then when they had the 1-0 lead, which they didn't deserve, it was just they were waiting for a mistake and a mistake happened and there was a penalty. They had the lead and then they allowed the game to, to, to sort of get a bit out of control. So there was sort of slapstick defending towards the end where you felt, oh, maybe maybe Fulham should have played long balls a bit bit more often because they were threatening uh, Chelsea and Chelsea just weren't dealing with it very well. So, that you know, it should have been the other way around. They should have gone at Fulham and then been composed at the end. Instead, they just got a bit rattled at, at the end. So it was... Um, uh, and you sort of think, God, if that if that is going to be the first cup final of the season, ooh, they better both improve. I'm sure, it, I'm sure if it was, it would be, but it didn't bode well. In terms of Pochettino, because we had a big conversation around Chelsea on Thursday's show, so I don't want to dwell too much on it, but what was he like in the press conferences? And was that some, like slightly deflated mood in Stamford Ridge to do with a slight fear about where the club are progressing? Do we think the kind of Pochettino enthusiasm is waning a little? And what was, what was he like? Because he must be a manager that you've dealt with plenty, no, plenty yeah. of times. L- lots and um, and he was very friendly to me on, on Saturday actually I, I said not so much funny stuff and he laughed uproariously so he's very kind <laughs> but um, no I, I saw before kick off he was in an absolute outwardly anyway super mood very buoyant very smiley joking with people before kick off and yeah they won in the press conference afterwards, he was keen to make jokes, very smiley, very upbeat, even made jokes about the ownership. You know, I hope I don't get any phone calls in January when I'm with my family sort of thing. The sort of things you joke about when you're confident in your position. Or if a he, very good actor. Well, I was going to say, if he, I mean, he's he is the best actor in the Premier League if he actually feels that he's in jeopardy because mm. he was giving off all the vibes of someone who's very happy with life and there's no not much evidence on it of it on the pitch, but in his head he feels he's making progress. That's that's the vibe he's giving. Interesting. Well, thankfully, you uh, were telling us before we started recording this podcast that there was another significant moment at Stamford Bridge off the pitch that at least gave you some entertainment. Tell us more. Well, I don't know if it was entertainment. It was just highly unnerving, actually. So. At Stamford Bridge, the press box is quite close to the pitch, and you are directly behind the subs bench and there's a little bit of a gap and then you're there and in between me and the players there was a row of men who all looked identical they all had slicked back black hair and they were all wearing green velvet bottle green jackets the fact they all looked identical was kind of weird I was going what's going on what's going on turned out uh, the owners had agreed to allow the match to be the platform for an advertisement for a new film that's coming out called Argyle, starring Henry Cavill. Cavill, and so these blokes were all um, not about Plymouth Argyle, just to be clear. Weirdly, <laughs> no, it's a thriller. It's a thriller okay. about definitely not about Plymouth. an author, an author who writes thrillers and then sees real life imitating her art. And um, sounds like one of your novels. A little bit, <laughs> but. Um, so they were all Henry Cavill lookalikes stood there, but sat there. And then, like, sort of 25 minutes in, they all stood up. There were about five of them. They all stood up. So you can see the players, and then behind them, these men stand up, and they start brushing their teeth. What? As a gimmick. And then, and then sort of 40 minutes in, they all stand up, and they're all reading the same book dramatically, if you can read a book dramatically. When you say standing up, are they blocking people's view behind they're them? They're blocking, yes. <laughs> Blimey. 
And then at halftime, they show clips of the film on the big screen and they try talking about it to the fans on the PA system, but the PA system is so rubbish, you couldn't actually hear what was going on. So most people in the stadium would have thought, I don't know why that's happening. It's really spooky. It was really unnerving. Also, it was bitterly cold and they just weren't warm enough. And you just thought, why? how much are they getting paid to do this? That, I mean, this is big games gone territory, isn't it? Let's be honest. Brushing your teeth. Brushing your teeth behind Mauricio Pochettino to promote a film. Very, Very strange. strange. So you you would list that as the most disconcerting thing you've ever most seen at a football match? Unnerving. Yes. Matt, can you top it? Unnerving things you've seen at football matches? Um, well, in terms of press box, uh, the... the I'm certainly unnerved by him. I'm pretty sure it must have been the 1994 FA Cup final when uh, there was one rabid Man United uh, fan in the press box and one rabid Chelsea fan in the press box. And you can probably guess what happened next. There was um, basically the, what began as an argument ends up with a fist fight, as far as I remember. And um, I think when it was the classic, you know, you normally get um, at the end of a game, you get. Uh, the sort of arrest count, uh, you know, certainly a big game at, at Wembley, like a cup final, and it was like, you know, seven arrests, two in the press box, basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was that that got a bit out of hand. There was there was another actually time when I saw um there was one at Stamford Bridge where there was a pretty much a coming to blows. So yeah, in terms of disconcerting things, seeing journalists beat each other up, I guess is is up there. Craig, I can't compete with either of those. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you, I was waiting for you to answer. I was always too much of a professional when I was on the pitch, <laughs> never, never looking at the crowd, never looking at the crowd. I mean, in, in terms of, it wasn't in the press box, but it was as a fan uh, when I was a student. I've told this story many times. Going to an England game in South Africa, um, a bit of a low ebb generally as a group because of following England at that tournament was a bit disappointing. Uh, and I had been bought by my flatmates as a joke some heart shaped diamante nipple tassels from Anne Summers. Oh, right, uh, okay. Uh, and okay. I'm very disconcerted. Already. I've, oh, no, yeah. I've definitely told this story on the most podcast. Disconcerting things before, you hear on the podcast. But I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm telling it again. Apologies to all my mates who listen to this podcast who've heard this story 95 times um, and decided to, you know, lift everyone's spirits. I thought I'd wear the heart shaped nipple tassels topless into the ground. So I had I heart ing I heart SA on there on my front and then I decided to get my mates to write in red face paint we still believe on my back dot 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 because we obviously needed to win the game against Slovenia I think to progress uh, got into the ground had had a few beers the beer started to kind of wear off and I realised Christ I'm topless wearing heart shaped nipple tassels <laughs> at a football match um, but then thankfully I realised I was not alone in the fancy dress stakes because amazingly directly behind me were four blokes in uh, St George's flag you know all costumed they call them gimp outfits or whatever you know all all body face covered everything you sure you're at a football game here, not <laughs> some, yeah. some this, this was the World Cup well you say about sex parties behind them <laughs> were four people dressed as Fabio Capello and so I then realised we were behind the goal and I realised that I saw a few photographers kind of spotting this collection <laughs> of people including me and I thought might as well embrace this. So started kind of giving it arms out and everything like that. Uh, and so actually the first time I ever appeared in a national newspaper was not bylined, was not for any of my work, but it was pictured on page three and page two of The Sun the day next day later. Pictures available on that. request, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Happy to provide the proof. Um, How much are they going for on eBay? Uh, my mum has bought them all and is proudly displaying them uh, in the living room back home. Pictures also available on various dark networks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it was, very, it was very strange to walk into the ground, as I say, of having a bit of a laugh outside and a few pictures taken with people coming up to me going, oh, can I have a picture? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm wearing nipple tassels. Oh, that's very funny. And then, as I say, get in and there's four people. I was like, It's like someone had set it up because there was me in front, 
we still believe on my back. There's a picture of me turned around, we still believe, I arms out, and it looks like I'm kind of conducting <laughs> these four blokes dressed as Fabio Capello in kind of song. It's uh, very atmospheric. We, but as I said, we still believe it's probably this, the daftest thing in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, exactly. Especially, especially what happened after that. But as I say, I'm very happily provide proof on request to any listeners who want to get in touch. Or maybe you want to get in touch about any of the subjects on the podcast today. Tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Alison Rudd, Matt Dickinson, Gregor Robson, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you too for listening. We'll be back on Thursday with plenty more to discuss, I'm sure. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>